Good morning and welcome to Coffee with the Sarlows. I'm Kelly. Good morning, I'm Karen. We're going to start off with show notes as usual today. We've got our Evening with Medium events coming up on April 26th, August 23rd, and December 13th. April is already sold out and tickets are selling for the other two shows. Mm -hmm. So make sure you head over to the website by sarlo.com to nab your tickets before they're gone. Sips of Sanity is a second podcast series. It's found on the website by sarlo.com. Those shows are 10 minutes. They run the first week of each month, Monday to Friday. We give you a topic on emotional or spiritual intelligence. And for the love of God, please know that you need to have both. (laughs) I wasn't expecting that, but valid. Well, people think that they just need to have spiritual intelligence and that they're going to be fine. They think that they, and some people think all they need is IQ. Mm. And they're totally out of balance, running around thinking that they are in balance and have no clue that they're missing emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. There's nothing worse with a, than a person with high spiritual intelligence or high IQ and no EQ. Well, I've never met a person with high spiritual intelligence that didn't also have emotional intelligence. I'd consider them frauds. That's, I agree. Okay, this got deep in our intro. I'm going to finish off and then we're going to get into today's show. Um, We also have gift certificates and personal sessions available. You can purchase those or inquire about those through the website by sarlo.com. Sessions can be purchased and received from anywhere in the world via Skype, FaceTime, telephone, or Zoom. If you'd like to have your cup of tea or coffee with us in a by Sarlo coffee mug, you can purchase one at the website by sarlo.com for $15. Okay, Karen, you have chosen a brilliant topic today, one that we're both very passionate about, one that is a very hot topic in the news, and that is consent. Yeah. Okay, so I picked this topic because I thought people might be interested in knowing what it looks like if you're a healthy person. I feel like well, hopefully. I feel like I'm coming across with some sarcasm today. <laughs> that's fine. Some some shows are crusty and that's just the way it goes. Some people think that consent is yelling at somebody, demanding things, and getting consent because they've bullied the person. And they'll take that form of consent because, or in any way that they can get it, and then wonder why things in their life aren't better than they are. And so I thought it'd be fun, well, fun, educational, for people to hear what it's like when you're a healthy person engaging in a consensual process. Okay. And so for listeners, we're not just talking about sexual situations for consent. We're talking in the workplace. We're talking in everyday relationships. And I think we have some examples too of your experience in the medical system. So we're kind of going to try and give you a wide variety of examples where consent needs to exist on a conscious level. Oh, perfect. Okay, so I did do some notes where I really wanted to kind of bring out certain points for people. So anybody that likes to listen to the show with their pen and paper, you're going to be happy. And I'm going to try and point out those notes for you. So the first issue or the first thing I wanted to bring up was that healthy people, when they want consent for something, meaning you want permission for something to happen, you want an agreement to do something, And I wrote down some other words like allow, sanction, submit, abide, concur, to go along with, 
to acquiesce, to conform to, to approve, to agree, to be in accord with. And I, I, I like that because it means energetically that when someone consents to something with you, you are on the same energy. Mm-hmm. So can I go back and finish your sentence? Yeah. You said healthy people. What is it they do? And what you had written down, Karen, were number one and two, and they can be very interchangeable depending on the situation, is they either ask questions, good questions, questions they actually intend to listen to the answer. The second one being listening. Yes. And I like what you just pointed out when you said to ask a question with the intention of actually listening. Yeah, because I think a lot of people pose a question, but it's not really, they're not really looking for permission. They're not really looking for an answer. They want to bully their way through and in, infer that you're going to give them a yes. Mm-hmm. Which is the sign of an immature person or the sign of a narcissistic person. Mm-hmm. So if you're sitting in a, in a boardroom and you've got the narcissist or the bully, one and the same, saying, and this is how we're going to go forward, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The question was right, being the check-in, but there wasn't time to allow for anyone to stand up and say, no, I don't agree with this. No, this isn't the way I want to move forward. And listening is really key because it means that when you're in the listening mode that you're giving the other person time. And we've talked about time stealers in past podcasts. When people want consent and they want to bully you, the very thing they want to steal from you is your time to think, your time to ask questions for clarity, your time to set a boundary, your time to walk away, your time to be in control. So they want to steal at least those five things from you, whether they realize it or not, consciously or not, at some point, it is conscious because it works for them. And you have to be able to stand your ground and take something back that you deserve to have. And that is your time for process. Okay, so we're talking about a healthy tool for people who are looking to actually gain consent. And you're also talking about a tool for someone who may be bullied through the process where they need to stand up and use their voice. Yes, and it can be what I call or what the guides called the five minute rule. You take your five minutes. And so you might say, well, what if I can't? You can take your five minute rule in the bathroom. You can excuse yourself right in the middle of a bully bullying you and go to the washroom. And if they say, where are you going to the washroom? And if they say, no, no, I just going to finish. No, no, just going to the washroom. And don't ever explain for what in the washroom. You don't say I have to pee. I have to have a poo. You do not explain yourself because that's what bullies want when they want to get through a consent process to win their way. They want you to have to explain yourself so they can shoot down your explanations. You don't have to pee. You're making that up. You can just hold your bladder. They want to come at you with what they think you should do. And this is where consent falls apart. So a healthy person takes their five minute rule. A healthy person also offers the five-minute rule. So many times I have said to people, whether they're working under me, with me, even above me, where I will offer a suggestion and say, 
you know, you seem enthusiastic, but do you want time to think about it? Even in the life coaching assessments, before people sign up for their programs, I'll say, I want you to take three days to think about this and understand what you're consenting to, Mm -hmm. what it entails, and come up with questions, clarify, ask different things so that you can gather information so that when you give a yes, it's a good, honest, trustworthy one. Mm -hmm. I like that. Thanks. And I think when you give yourself the five-minute rule, that sometimes it's just the fill in the blank rule. So it doesn't have to be five minutes, it can be 15. It could be an hour, it could be the morning, it could be a day, it could be a week. And sometimes if you just don't know what the time frame is, say it's a work environment, you might say, when do you need to know? And that's when the good questions come in. Instead of rushing yourself through that and giving a response. Mm-hmm. You may have to say, when do you need an answer by? And if they say right now, then you and if you know, that's a lie, then then it's upon you to set the boundary and be able to say, well, that doesn't work for me. And that's a great statement. It is because many people will find time when you say that doesn't work for me. Yeah, they'll say, I'll give you 10 minutes. I'll give you an hour. Yeah. Oh, all of a sudden we have all this time. Look at that. Yes. And then you get to see that in fact, they were bullying you. Or they weren't thinking clearly if it's a kind person, and they kindly give that back to you. This is a great way to measure the energy and the intention in conversation. So let's come back to the person who is looking for consent, the healthy person who is seeking it out. Oh, yeah. Well, they first of all, if they're healthy, they want to give you time because they want an honest answer. They want to know they're not violating your boundaries. Yes, they want to know that you have the time or the energy or the resources or whatever it is that is required for the consent, for the commitment. Cal, you were talking the other day about taking a first aid CPR course. And I really liked the conversation that you explained between you and your partner when you had to do CPR. Yeah, so I was taking the course CPR and first aid. So on the second day when we're going through first aid, it's very hands-on. There's a lot of practical activities to make sure that you know exactly how to wrap, bandage, tend to a patient depending on what their, their ailments are. So the partner that I was working with, I just I feel fortunate. She was very, very mature, very kind, uh, and understood consent. So when we were working together, one of the activities was about splinting a lower leg injury. And we were taught a couple different ways to do it. And the instructor said, you know, you're going to you're going to kind of lock their knee in place and you're going to put your hand around the balls of their feet. So I was the guinea pig first. And I had said to Jess, um, I don't give you consent to touch my feet. And she didn't take offense. She didn't take it personally. I just said, please don't touch my feet. And she said, no problem. Is it okay if I place my hand on your knee where where we've been instructed to do so? And I said, yeah, the, the knee is fine. So she did that. And she just put her hand next to my foot, parallel to where she would be touching my foot, to show the instructor that she did understand what she was supposed to do. And the instructor came around and said, how come you're not touching her? How come, how come you're not doing this? You mean like giving her heck? Is yeah. That, is that what you mean? Oh, yeah. Okay. And I said to him, because I did not give her consent to touch my feet. 
And he got extremely defensive and he said, you know, my job here is to make everyone feel comfortable. My job here is to make sure that everyone knows how to do it properly. And I said, we understand what you're asking. I did not give her consent to touch my feet. That's a personal issue. It has nothing to do with you. And he seemed very not under not able to understand. And mean, in meanwhile, Jess was fantastic. She was able to demonstrate everything she needed to know while still respecting me. And actually, when we changed turns, because we both both get a turn to be the guinea pig, she actually had the courage to say to me, I would also appreciate if you did not touch my feet. Oh, that's good. Yeah. So there, there was a very lovely level of respect between the two of us. Which is one of the reasons why we're teaching healthy consent. Because it means that you feel safe when there's healthy consent, and it means that you feel respected. Yeah, and and it's interesting, too, that the instructor reacted the way he did, because specifically when you're doing CPR and first aid, they are so diligent to tell you that you need to walk your patient through every single thing that you're doing, even if you've assessed them to be unconscious. You have to tell them, I'm going to pat you down, I'm going over your arm, I'm going over your leg, so that they can brace themselves or be prepared to be touched. Right. Even if they're unconscious, you have to walk them through it. That's beautiful. Yeah. I really like to hear that, Kelly, because it says so much about the fact that science has moved to that place where they're willing to acknowledge the consciousness of the spirit. Yes. So that if you're unconscious on the stretcher, at the accident site or in the hospital room, they're still saying that the soul is present, that there's a consciousness present. Yeah, and they're still saying act as calm as you would if they were fully awake and responding to you because they need to know that they're safe and they're being taken care of and they need to feel confident that you know what you're doing. Okay, you've just described tons of reasons why people need to understand healthy consent. Yes. Because you're talking about building confidence in a person. Mm. Between people. Right. So if now you're approaching a person and you want them to comply with something that you want or need to get done, you're asking for them to do it willingly instead of out of a place of resentment, anger, or fear. Mm -hmm. So another example could be, let's take sports, for example, where you have a coach and you have people on a team in a practice and you want your players to be able to achieve a goal. And your idea of approaching them is to scream and yell at them to do it, as opposed to, I'll say coaching by giving direction. So you want them to do something, you want their consent, you want them to participate. And I think that's something that people don't understand about consent sometimes is that it's participation. Ongoing. Yeah, because you don't just want your teammate or the person that you're coaching to participate with you just in that moment out of fear because they're afraid of you. You want them to participate when they're on the team playing in a game situation. Yeah, and let's back it up. Like, let's not even get on the field yet. If I sign up for soccer, you know, the coach might assume that by signing up and being assigned to his team that that is my consent to be coached by him no matter what. And that is not what real consent is. I've consented to be on the team, but I still have a right to feel out and stand up and against the coach and say that is not healthy behavior. You've said it in a wonderful way. 
that I think many people in sports don't always understand. Mm -hmm. And that it is an accepted way to try and force consent out of your players, because I'm the coach. And so they hide behind that because they don't actually have a skill set. Mm -hmm. And there are differences in those two types of coaches. The one that says, I'm in a position of power, therefore, I will force consent. And it becomes abuse. And the parents stand around and think, oh, well, he's the coach. You have to listen to your coach. And you give them a teaching that says you can throw consent out the window when somebody has a position of authority over you and you want what they can give you. Well, I think that's a perfect segue into the medical community. If we can be done with the coaching idea, right? So if you walk into a doctor's office, you want the solution that hopefully they're able to give you or you believe that they should be able to give you. And so some medical practitioners, nurses included, and we're not saying everyone, so don't get your knickers in a knot if you are in the medical field. Some people sit in that position of authority and don't think they need to walk you through what they're doing. Don't think that they need to ask you permission to draw your blood. Right. They say, we're going to draw blood. Mm -hmm. Can I have... Can I have your arm? And they're not listening for the response of, no, I didn't prepare for that. I've walked into my optometrist's office for a regular checkup where they have not told me in advance that they're going to dilate my pupils. And I've said, no, not today. Mm -hmm. They've said, no, no, we need to dilate your pupils. Come on into the other room. And I've said, no, not today. I drove myself here, which means I can't drive myself home. Mm-hmm. I needed to be told in advance so I could make proper arrangements. I don't consent. Mm-hmm. I, it's a good example, Kelly, where you're likening the medical situation where it's literally about your body and we're talking about your right to consent to things. And also where we say we sign up, we sign the consent form to be part of a team. We sign up to be part of a marriage. We sign the papers saying we consent to living with this person and then that person throws everything out the window because we are committed to something or because we are in fear of losing something and they lose all ability to see us as individuals that need consent and I think one of the biggest places that that can happen is where there is an imbalance of authority and the person in authority forgets that they need a consensual process. Yeah, because if if I turned to the doctor and said, well, what are my other options? And they said, well, we could do a urine sample. It'll take a little bit longer. I might sit there and go, I choose option number two. Yeah. And they might not care. Right. Yeah. The thing of it is, is that sometimes the person who's wanting us to do something doesn't realize that we are fine with options and that they might like our options too. So they have a sense of urgency or a sense, I'll say a variety of things. They may have a sense of power. They may have a sense of nervousness in their own level of anxiety. And instead of expressing it, they don't. Or the coach might say, I don't know how to get this person to do what I want them to do. I have to go ask other coaches what kind of techniques they're using. They don't step outside of it that I don't have all of the answers and I'm not certain what I'm doing. I can't come across that way 
because I'm supposed to have the answers. I'm the coach. As opposed to, I don't know, and I'm going to come back with some ideas next time. So go around, stumble around on the ice or stumble around on the soccer field. (laughs) And hopefully the next time you guys show up, I'll have some other tools or I might bring another coach with me who knows how to do it and I'll watch them. They can mentor me while I'm with my team and my team can watch me grow and change and they can see how wonderful the experience is when we admit we don't know how to do something and we ask for help. So Kelly, this kind of, I'm going to use this as a segue into those 15 forms of verbal abuse again, meaning that some people want another person to give consent to something, to comply, to be part of something, and they don't do it in a healthy way. And it turns into any or all combinations of verbal abuse. So they may withhold information in the consent process. I don't want you to know everything because you might say no. I avoid answering certain things because hmm, I want to keep my position of power. I might not want to share it with you or give it to you. I might make fun of you. I might criticize. So you can go through those forms on another show we did with Patricia Evans on the verbally abusive relationship. But it's important to know those. Whether you're the one that's in the position of, I want someone to give consent or someone's looking for consent from me in this process, and I don't want to be either A, the abuser, or B, the abused. Because if you've got either or in a relationship, it's not typically going to go well. I want to, I want to say this too, just because we're talking about verbal abuse, and we, we often hear the cliche of silence is not consent. And I think that's a really great rule in certain situations, such as sexual situations. Mm -hmm. Silence is not consent. You need a yes or a no to move forward or no to stop. However, in the situation where you are someone who is witnessing verbal abuse, witnessing two people engaged in it, your silence is consent. Mm -hmm. Your unwillingness to step up or step in and put a stop to it is your consent to say, I'm okay with this behavior, I'm going to let it happen. That really brings to light for me watching you play high school volleyball uh, over a decade ago, more than at least, where the entire city watched one particular team with abusive coaches every single time we went to the games, Mm -hmm. verbally abused their players on the floor in front of Dozens and hundreds of people in the audience, parents, teachers, the principals of the schools, and nobody stopped them. And that went on for years in this city. Oh, because they won. Yes. So the victory allowed verbal abuse. And the girls on the floor, in order to stay on the team, had to consent to it. And around them, there wasn't a single adult that was trying to stop it. And somehow, these people who use these forms of verbal abuse in this particular sport have been encouraged to go higher and higher. And so what we get to see is that when people are not stopped, they actually get success. And in the work environment, it's called corporate bullying. 
We don't yet, as far as I know, have a term for that type in sports, but maybe there is a term and I just don't know it. But I certainly know that this is prevalent everywhere to all, all levels, which kind of leads us perfectly into my next point, that when we want consent, healthy people will feel empathy for the person that they're talking to. They will want to know how it affects them or what it might require from them. They might even ask that question. If I want you to do this, what would it require for you to get it done? So if I think of a work environment and I want X, Y, and Z done in a job, then if I have empathy for that person, I might have a deadline and say, I need these things done in an hour. What do you need to get that done? And I remember working um, at the North Bay Regional Healthcare Center years, oh my God, decades ago now, where I had to organize tons of meetings to prepare for the building of the brand new hospital. And my boss came up to me and said, I need this list. And oh my God, there must have been 50 items on the list. And he said, I need all of this done. And it was just me. I said, do I have a team? (laughs) And he looked at me like, what? You're the assistant. And I said, this would require like 50 people to do. So do I have a team? What do I have? And he said, nothing. Get it done. And I said, well, I need to ask more questions. Which one is at the top of the list? Do I do number one? Do I do number two? Like, which, which, what do you need here? He never asked me what I needed to get any of that done. So as much as I might want to give consent, I want to keep my job. I want to do well. I want to make sure all these meetings get, all these people get to the right places. I want to be on the same page as him. He gave me no ability to get there. Mm. And you're you're mixing three tools now. So you're talking about people who are wanting to gain consent, being empathetic and knowing that the person they're asking consent of will likely need resources from them or know what the resources are around them. So the question that you end up asking, and that's one tool, is an empathetic question. That's mm-hmm. two tools mixed together. Then you're listening really, really active listening for the actual answer so that you can hopefully supply them with what they need to get to carry out the task. Yes. And he had a complete lack of empathy for me to think, what does she need? Or can she get it done? What's on her plate from yesterday? She's still catching up on. What are her other bosses asking her to do? Does did all of them show up today and give her five things to do? There was zero empathy. You know, it makes me think of high school teachers when they would assign hours of homework and you'd look at them and go like, you know, I have five other courses, right? Like every single person studies five to six courses in a semester. And you think it's reasonable to assign three hours of homework in an evening just to yours. Mm-hmm. I got five other teachers that are doing that. And, and they also might know that some of the students work five till 10. They might also know some of them have to take care of a parent with multiple sclerosis. They also know that there are all these other issues. And I guess that's our point in that if there's no empathy, then there is no consent. 
or it's going to be very difficult for that person to truly give you consent that they can do what you're asking them to do. And there's going to be failure. And then, wow, what happens when there's failure? Then they punish you. So it creates an unhealthy cycle. So a healthy person feels empathy when they want consent from somebody. They're reaching out saying, what would you need to get these things done? And when that occurs, you have a far more likelihood of actually getting what you want. And also, you have an ability then to appreciate what they're doing. You have an ability then to go back and check in. There's more of a process. And there's going to be more of an openness from the person that you're asking that if something goes wrong, all of a sudden they get diarrhea or all of a sudden, oh, that might not have been a good example, but something happens in their life. They get a call, their kid is sick, whatever, that all of a sudden, if they cannot continue, they're more likely to come up to you with honesty and say, I was working on this. This is where I'm at. We just told them not to explain their bathroom issues. <laughs> um, I have to go home sick. I have to pick up my child or whatever it is. This is my plan. I'll be back in the morning or I'll take my child home and come back at five o'clock. But it allows more open communication to say, how can I problem solve this? Can I give it to a coworker? Can you get it done for me? Um, and I can do something later to help you out. It opens up when you have empathy for someone else. So hopefully we can learn from all of this that when you want consent, one of the things that is very important to do in the entire process is to check in and to be able to offer to the person that you want consent from to be able to feel that they can check in with you too. So that a check-in can go two ways, which means communicating, which means asking good pertinent questions so they know what they're actually being asked to do and what they're responsible for. It's also having humility because mm. if we are talking about consent being ongoing, there needs to be enough humility on both people's parts to be able to say, I need to stop. I need to withdraw my consent. And there needs to be humility with the person who's receiving that information to know that it might be personal, but you don't need to necessarily take offense mm -hmm. or it might not be personal and you just need to hear the information and gather more. Mm -hmm. Oh, when you're saying that, Kel, I think about parents and kids and where boundaries are often crossed in that role where parents want their children to give consent or, you know, go hug this person, do this. And you're crossing your child's boundary. You're not saying, do you want to hug grandma? You're just saying, do it. As opposed to listening. And that we don't allow the child to express what they're feeling. So if they start to cry, for example, I don't want to hug grandma. We don't ask why. We think, oh, that's rude. You're hurting grandma's feelings. Or they ask a non-question like, well, don't you love her? Right. I like how you call that a non-question. It's just, it's just guilt. It's just making them completely, and I think you use the word confuck, confuse and fuck yep. up. Yeah. Confuck their feelings for said grandma in question, um, that hugging her means I love her, but I know for certain in my body, I don't want to hug her. So does that mean I don't love her now? Do, does that mean I'm not a good person? Yeah. And, and what would it, what's a four-year-old supposed to do with that? 
What's a 12-year-old supposed to do with that? Well, that's when you become a 30-year-old and don't know what to do with it when your husband or wife is doing it to you. Yeah. It, it comes right back down to when we do it to that four-year-old and we start to confucking them. Yeah. I, I know I've had some, some friends with beautiful children, and I mean beautiful in their spirit, um, where I always say to them, would you like a hug? And if they say no, or they show a lack of interest, I let them know, well, I love them. So whenever you feel like you want one, you know where to find me. Mm-hmm. I would be thrilled. Yeah, because it has to do with how they're processing something that they're going through. Yeah. So if they hug me two days later, or three hours later, it's it's in their realm of safety. They've evaluated themselves and they have remembered that I've become a safe place. Right. And they may have needed time to process something else that had nothing to do with you. Or to observe me and witness that, you know what? Yeah, okay, I, I choose to trust her. Mm-hmm. I think they have, they should have the opportunity to observe and assess themselves. Well, again, that goes right into the 30-year-old or the 50-year-old that has to try and figure out what it means to self-assess. So when we don't understand that we have no self-assessment tools and we come in and say, how come I don't know what I feel or what I think or why I'm still in this relationship, it goes back down to some of those initial moments where we're told, skip the process. It's not important. Just do what you're told or what the other person wants from you. And that's when we are told that consent is something we don't deserve. That's the unhealthy. And now we're saying today, here's your healthy. Your healthy means that you are allowed to assess that. So if your husband or your partner or your parent has been mean to you, then you have the right to say, I don't want to be touched, kissed, hugged, have sex with, sit, talk and talk to. And that's where a lot of people stay in abusive relationships because they were told they weren't allowed to think. They weren't taught the process of healthy consent. Our next little point here is knowing what you're responsible for when you're being asked to consent to something and to ask yourself questions like, is this person bullying me? And if they're bullying me, then they must know I don't want to consent to something. So why are they bullying me? There's a red flag for me. I better not consent to anything till I figure it out. Because I'm likely going to get into this at some point, feel anger and resentment later. Or anxiety, and I don't want to confront them. Because I've already consented. And they may guilt me that I've consented. And that can be a nasty little habit where we get bullied into consent, we get into it, and then we want to become the avoider afterwards. We run away, we quit, we do the things that finally give us a sense of control again, but not in a healthy way. And then the other person comes back because we've broken consent and they attack. Or they withhold and avoid and create a cycle to make us get looped back in again. So healthy consent means that you take time to know what you're being asked, that you take time to know what your responsibility is in it, if you have the time to do it, if you have the energy for it, if it is in alignment with your beliefs, if it is in alignment with what you want 
or if you do want to extend yourself, that you're doing it by choice. And that you ask yourself questions like, am I being over-responsible or under-responsible if I consent to this? Am I getting triggered in any way? Because people like to get consent and push things when they know how they can trigger you. So you have to figure out what your own triggers are. If you don't know them first, if you can't see when they're pressing them and go, oh, I know you're hitting my triggers. This isn't going to work. Then it's going to work. So you, you really have to know that. And along those lines, we have to know things like what our needs are versus what we want. And that goes for the person who's asking or wants consent from somebody. Know what your needs are versus what your wants are. And if you can get what your needs are, but not your wants, then can you sit back and recognize, okay, I'm good with that. I need this to get done. This other stuff was on my wish list or my want list. They can't comply with all of it, but I'm going to be super happy and grateful that they met what I need. And some people can't do that. They have to have all of their wants met and they make themselves believe in their reality that their wants are their needs and they're not. Here's a fun twist. I've got employees who request time off and their needs and wants get mixed up in their heads. So they want their bosses to consent to the time off. And we have our system that we go through to provide consent for that request of time off. And then they're angry they're not making money that week. Oh, that's a good example. So they got consent because they evaluated this was a want or they need a vacation, but it's really a want. And now they're mad that consent means they're not getting paid. (laughs) That's good fucking. Totally. And and that's the, why I'm saying it's so, or I'm reiterating your point of yeah. it being very important that you are knowing the difference between your needs and wants, because I can sit here 52 weeks out of the year and convince myself that I quote unquote need a vacation. But when it comes down to factoring in or number crunching bills and what I owe and what I need to be just plain responsible for, not over or under, That vacation is not a need. It's a want. Yeah. And I'm not going to go looking for someone's consent or bully them by saying, I never ask for time off. You should give this to me and then be angry. That's a good example. I think so because I think a lot of people are in the workforce and feel these things. And some people are rational enough to understand them and some are not. Yeah. They want to feel whatever it is they feel in the current moment. So if today I'm happy I got the vacation approved, great. If tomorrow I'm angry because I don't have a paycheck coming in, then great. I just want to be angry. Right. Yeah. And that's why we're doing healthy versus unhealthy. So you're describing the unhealthy. Yep. Where in an unhealthy way with no self-awareness, no understanding of what your responsibilities are, you make your wants your needs. That, that was perfect, Cal. Thank you. Mm-hmm. My goal today was to give people tools to understand and to be able to utilize in their life, even if it's one or two of them at the beginning, to be able to sit down and say, this is what I do in this relationship, because you might be great at work and suck at home with your partner. 
or you might be great with your partner and great with some children in the family and not good with one child. So your homework here could be to recognize in what particular relationship you need to do some work. Well, and the homework too for for both unhealthy and healthy individuals is to constantly understand and observe how often you are consenting in a day. Hmm. Know that each conversation you're engaged in, there's an opportunity for consent. Mm, I like that. When you said that, Kelly, I went right to the fact of, geez, I wonder if I'm that person in a group situation where somebody's being verbally abused and I consent with silence. And I think typically, no, for me, I, I speak up, I report, I... Yeah, I, and but and complaints. We both talked about complaints being another kind of mirror of uh, verbal abuse as well. If you're sitting in a room complaining, and I'm not challenging you or asking you good questions or saying that's enough, I'm consenting to that negativity. Mm-hmm. It's not all on you as the bad person in the office or in this relationship. I'm consenting to let you do this over and over again. Yeah, and I think of how many times and how many people walk away. So you at a dinner party, you might all be sitting at the dinner table and one couple goes at it and everybody pretends it's not happening or they start up other conversations or their child walks into the room and we think it's none of our business when we hear them abusing their child. Yep. We don't say anything at all to the parent because we want to keep, we want to be in the friend group. We're so afraid of being tossed out of the friend group that we allow that. Mm -hmm. And I think that is one of the places that I have been a participant in that in my own past, that I wouldn't participate anymore, but I know I did, where I can clearly remember being at dinner tables, including in at family events, where a family member, or a friend was verbally abusive to their partner, or to a parent, or to a child present, or talking about a person who was not present to defend themselves or to to stand up for themselves and nobody stood up. So there was, as you said, that silent consent. So the one for me that stuck out today was the silent consent and to question myself. So thank you. I like that. You, You gave me, or this show hopefully will present people with the challenges to, can you identify it for yourself and not sit there and think you're perfect, that you, you've got it down pat. Mm. Yep. And if you do have it down pat, oh my God, good for you. Okay. So if you have questions or comments about today's show, you can email us at info at I also want to mention, we do have another show coming out next Saturday, but if you missed last Saturday's, it is the universal law of responsibility, which we did mention a lot in this show. It might be a great one to go back and listen to if you haven't already.